Hi, you're listening to the Warren Wearsby Preaching Podcast, and I am not Warren Wearsby. My name is Dan, Dan Jacobson. My grandpa was Warren Wearsby. There are thousands of people who have listened to his sermons through this podcast. I just want to take a moment to say thanks. This podcast was started through a partnership between Warren and the then senior pastor at Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia, Michael Catt. My grandpa knew the internet had potential. He had plenty of experience talking into microphones, but he had no idea the power of podcasts. And honestly, he didn't think people would want to continue hearing old sermons. I always thought that was ironic because he himself read hundred-year-old sermons every day. So after some exploration and some conversation, he sent Michael a box of cassettes of his old sermons from Sunday evening services at the Moody Church or from days uh, long gone at the Calvary Baptist Church in Covington, Kentucky. And Michael's incredible team at Sherwood had some of these old messages remastered and improved to the best of their ability and started posting these for the benefit of Christians and pastors across the globe. And today, this podcast is listened to by people on every continent. Recently, Michael and the team at Sherwood helped our family assume ownership of this channel, and for that, we're really grateful we're committed to helping you find Warren's trusted exegesis and faithful biblical theology as long as we're able to do so. Over the last few months, as we've watched this podcast grow, it's been impressive how many 35 to 49-year-olds are listening, people just like me. You likely um, didn't have a chance to hear Wearsby live. So one of the opportunities that we've stumbled into is the chance to introduce you to both Warren, the preacher and the author, as well as to the friends who knew him well. Every once in a while, we're going to interrupt this broadcast to drop an episode just like the one you're about to hear, which is an interview between me and someone in Warren's world. We're going to talk about the art of preaching. We're going to talk shop, sort of. Uh, this is my approach to these conversations. I, I'm currently a lead teaching pastor in the Kansas City area. Over my you know, couple of years in ministry, I've preached hundreds of sermons. I'm excited to sit down with some legendary pastors who have preached thousands of sermons in their lifetime. And I hope these conversations help you hear wisdom and encouragement. So to kick us off, I could think of no better guest than Warren's successor at the Moody Church, Dr. Erwin Lutzer. Dr. Lutzer recently stepped aside from the senior pastorate at the Moody Church and has continued to travel and to write extensively. Our conversation today ranges from his early years of preaching to the cows in his family farm to the recent books about politics and culture that he's released. He's got some insight for us who have tried to navigate the cultural upheaval over the past few years, especially for those of us who have been pastors. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. Well, Erwin Lutzer, thank you so much for taking some time out of your schedule to talk with us about your life, your ministry, and how uh, God has used you to preach. Now, you you have an interesting connection with uh, Warren Wearsby. Can you tell the story about uh, maybe getting to know him in Chicago and then maybe the first time that you ever preached in the Moody Church? Well, what happened is I had come to know him because we prayed together in the early 70s. And then um, 
when I resigned from my church in Chicago, we didn't have a place to go. The next Sunday, my wife suggested we go to Moody Church, and there was no parking. This was 1971. So uh, I dropped her and our two kids off, and lo and behold, there was someone who backed out of a parking space, and I backed in. Now, why is that significant? Because when I was in the lobby, I met Pastor Wearsby. He had his coat on and was leaving, and he didn't see me, but I saw him. I put my hand on his shoulder and said, Wearsby, what are you doing here? He said, Erwin Lutzer, I'm sick. I'm on my way home. Will you preach for me this morning? So he took me to the back of the church, introduced me to some of his staff, and I preached that morning at Moody Church. And that, of course, became one of the means by which eventually, through the providence of God, I became the pastor of Moody Church for 36 years. But when people think of Warren Wiersbe, what do they think of? They think of his ability to preach, which I would like to share with you, and I'd like to share my own story of preaching. I was a graduate of Dallas Seminary, the seminary that was to teach preachers, and they did. But when I became the pastor of a small Baptist church, I was totally frustrated because what I like to do when I preach is to have unity, order, and progress. And I didn't know how to do that. You know, we were told, make sure that you check the commentaries, do word studies. So in those days, long before computers, we'd have a desk full of papers. You know, this one has a great illustration. Over here, you have a, um, a sheet of paper with uh, some word studies, and you have some idea of the, quote, flow of the passage. But still, how do you make it so that it isn't simply rambling from one part of the text to another, hoping that eventually you'd get to some kind of a powerful conclusion. What happened is I learned this not through Pastor Wiersbe, though later on I'll refer to him because actually this was his method, but another man who was teaching homiletics asked if he could meet with me. We met together over coffee, and in 10 or 15 minutes he changed everything. Incredible. I share this with pastors all over the country. What is the secret of having a sermon that has unity, order, and progress so that it begins somewhere, it ends somewhere with cohesion? I love that word, cohesion. The answer is simply this, and it's so simple, it's embarrassing. And that is to have a key word that gives you the basis upon which all of your points are going to be subsumed. For example, this coming Sunday, I'm preaching on Psalm 73 in a church here in the Chicago area, and I'm just preparing the message on Psalm 73. It's going to be on those who deconstruct their faith, because Asaph was about ready to give up his belief in God and the promises. And then what is it that he learned? So what I'm going to do is to talk about three mistakes that he made 
during his period of doubt. So my key word is mistakes. Every comment I'm going to make, I'm going to say this mistake, this mistake, this mistake to give coherence. Now, there are actually hundreds of keywords. Maybe you want to use the word principle. Maybe you want to use the word lessons. Maybe you want to use the word admonitions, questions. What you need is a word that gives direction to the sermon so that it actually does hold together. Now, the human mind likes to organize. So if you've not heard about the keyword idea, you may already be using it, and you're going to use the word things. Now today, there are four things in this passage that I want to share with you. And what do you do next Sunday? Well, guess what? There are more things that you want to share. The word thing is a plural noun, but it gives no direction to the sermon. As a matter of fact, everything is a thing. So what you need to do is to reflect and say, which direction does this passage go? Oh, in seminary, we were told the outline would somehow almost miraculously arise out of the text. Well, that might work in some of the, the, some of the writings of the Apostle Paul, but it didn't help me much if I'm preaching on the life of an Old Testament character or if I'm deal, dealing with other passages of the New Testament. So what you do is you get the direction of the passage. You ask when, why, what questions to help you see the direction. And then you ask for a key word that will give unity, order, and progress to a sermon. Dan, since you're on this with me, have you understood that? Did you know that that's the method that Warren Wearsby used? It wasn't. So here's how it went for me. It, I've preached, um, been preaching only about 10 years now. And the first five, six years were um, a fight to get clarity, order, progress, movement. But when my grandfather passed away, I received some of his, uh, his sermon notes, the, the thing that he would take into the pulpit or the thing he would scratch before he disregarded it, before he went up to the pulpit because he would preach from memory quite often. And what struck out, what, 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 made, what I noticed immediately was in his introduction, the last line of his introduction was in all caps, one word, and it was characteristics. It was uh, questions. It was the key word for that day. And once I saw that every, his whole formula was just simply, there are four characteristics that make us fishers of men. <laughs> there are, you know, three storms of life that you will endure. Uh, it, it, all, it all of a sudden made me interested to read more because it wasn't just this abstract thing, but it, it also gave me a perspective. I can go back now and um, almost the week, the next week, it changed my preaching too. Uh, and I think my church found clarity coming out of a young voice and out of, out of, uh, out of my preaching that, you know, a couple, a couple months later is when I ran into you, Dr. Lutzer, uh, at, at a, a book fair in a, a conference and, uh, saw you from across the way, walked over, said, I, you know, I'm Warren Grisby's grandson. And, um, you, you just turned and you say, Oh, have you figured out one word preaching yet? <laughs> like, like weeks before I had just, just figured that out. 
Um, Dr. Lutzer, take us back. Your your autobiography is um, titled "He Will Be the Preacher." Could you share where that title came from, and then how you watched God sort of prove that through your growing up years that even led you into your seminary days? Well, I was born on a farm in Saskatchewan, Canada, the last of five children. So I grew up feeding chickens, occasionally milking cows, getting away with murder, to use the words (laughs) of my sister, all right? And uh, I was uh, introduced to Billy Graham, but I think that the question that you're asking goes before that. When I was a baby sleeping in a crib, the pastor and his wife of the church came over, and apparently, according to my mother, the pastor's wife gave me a kiss and said in German, because my parents were Germans and this was a German church, he will be the preacher. Hmm. Now, how she knew that, I don't know. It may have just been an odd remark. I never did meet her because she died when I was very little. But isn't that interesting that it came to be? She never said that about my other two brothers. So that's why the title of my autobiography is He Will Be the Preacher, because somehow, whether randomly or by divine inspiration, she said that, and it turned out to be right. As I was growing up, In the early 50s, there was a Billy Graham film, which is no longer available for reasons I won't go into, entitled Mr. Texas. I went to that film and I became hooked on Billy. Now, my generation of teenagers was into Elvis. I was into Billy. And, you know, I think I made the better choice. I read everything I could about Billy When I was on my father's tractor, I would pretend that I was preaching to a large crowd. Nobody got converted, but on the other hand, I didn't receive any criticism either. (laughs) If that tractor doesn't make it to heaven, it won't be my Because in my mind, I would give an invitation and so forth. Now, if you ask the question, how did I get from that farm in an obscure place five miles from a town of 75 people to become the pastor of Moody Church and to write books. That's the reason I wrote my autobiography is to give thanks to God because all the way along the line, I experienced his unpredictable providence whereby he put all those links together. And uh, God even had a surprise for that farm boy A couple of times, it was my privilege to actually meet Billy Graham, my hero. But here's the point. I think that young preachers should have a hero, not in a sense where you worship them, but there should be somebody that you admire, somebody who's going to inspire you, somebody who's going to give you the encouragement. So my whole life has been a story of my mother's prayers. I have to add this on their 70th anniversary. Now, they lived together for 77 years. My father died at 106, my mother at 103. I always say that my parents lived so long that I'm sure until my father died, all of their friends in heaven thought that they just didn't make it. You know, they said, (laughs) where are the Lutzers? But the Lutzers made it, okay? Yeah. On their 70th anniversary, I said, mother, do you know the names of all of your 
grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. And she just waved her hand and said, I pray for them every day. When she died, we found her prayer list. All of the kids, all of the grandkids, all of the great-grandkids written in her own writing, and then some missionaries. Hmm. So I think that my ministry today is still the product of my parents' prayers. The prayers of, of our ancestors are so important. Um, my, my family this week has been passing around a little booklet that was uh, the, the, maybe the patriarch of our family who immigrated from Sweden had prayed for there to be a preacher in every generation of our family, um, to which my grandfather was uh, the third answer to that prayer. I, I'm the fifth. And there's a relative that we have who's also of my generation who's preaching down in Florida right now. And just seeing the prayers of, of those who have come before us are incredible. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure my grandfather told you the story, but um, when he left the Moody church, it was, um, it, it wasn't, there was no question about who God had called in his mind to become the pastor of Moody church. And he, he famously would tell us around Thanksgiving dinner tables and whatnot. When I left Moody, I told them to go down to that institute and tell Erwin Lutzer that this was what he was supposed to do. <laughs> now, I mean, it's easy to say that after you had been there for 20 years or, or so, but I think he firmly believed there was a sense that you would be the preacher, that that, that title of your autobiography was was confirmed in his mind as well. And there's a sense of a... Um, you know, both God's work inside of the preacher's heart and the affirmation of those who know us and are around us and, and can see often what we can't see. Um, I, I'm sure that has helped you in tough times in, in challenging moments in yeah. preaching. Mm -hmm. Are you, are you the type of person who preaches a message or maybe early on in your, in your ministry would preach a message and then re-preach it in your mind as you're falling asleep that night because of how maybe you missed the mark from the stage, but you want another chance or, or how, how did, how did just knowing God's divine call and seeing how all these things have put together in your life, how, how encouraging was that for you in those tough times? First of all, I think that a preacher needs that inner compulsion. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. But on the other hand, if you do not have the affirmation of the body of Christ, I suggest that you do something else. It's very interesting that when I preached, even when I was in Bible college, and I found it difficult to make up messages, you know, you take a little bit from here and a little bit from there and you put it together. I'll never forget when my pastor when I was in Bible college, said, Erwin, I want you to preach a week from Sunday in the evening service. I remember as clearly as anything, I said, I have only one sermon. I have, I said, I have two sermons or three, but each is 10 minutes. He said, well, then put them together. <laughs> now, I appreciated that because he was taking a risk. But here's the point. When I preached, everyone said, He's called to preach. So I would like to say this to all the preachers out there. Some people think that they are called to preach, but apparently nobody is called to listen. So <laughs> it's very important that you be called to preach, that the body of Christ confirm it. And then something else that's critical in our day, especially, you need the character to be able to support that calling. We've got all kinds of people who are gifted, called, definitely cut out for ministry, 
but they didn't have the character to support it. And uh, we know where that ends. Now, with reference to your other question, if, I, if I'm finished preaching, so often I pour out my heart. By the way, this past Sunday, I actually preached three times. Now, it was the same message, but God gave me the strength to be able to preach three times. But I find it difficult afterwards to concentrate on other things. You know, people will come up and they'll ask me a question about something else. My mind is still spinning about what I just preached, the burden I had, whether or not I said what I intended to. If I made a mistake, that's what I'm focused on. So it takes a while to come down from the mountain, so to speak. And then, yes, indeed, when you go to bed at night, you can sometimes think about uh, the fact of what you missed or should have said. And I frequently have done that. I thought to myself, you know, I should have really said this. I should have really said that. Now, there are some messages I preached. You know, all of us, Dan, I'm sure, have preached our share of forgettable messages. And there are some that I preached that I thought were not very great but God used them mightily. It's amazing whom God uses and what he uses. It's maybe the most humbling part of preaching in my experience is to have the one where it feels like a swing and a miss really connect with someone's soul. And that's a, that's a, a work of God. Dr. Lutzer, if you could encourage some of uh, you know us, us younger preachers, this is a, you know, COVID brought along the phrase unprecedented times. I'm convinced that we just don't have long enough of a historical memory to remember the precedents that these times actually do come from. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I was reading your autobiography the other day. I, I got to confess, I, um, I stayed up past midnight f- just flying through it because it was just so um, just fascinating. I, I just, you, you tell your story very well, but it's also just real, real to the pastoral experience. But um, you were you you were in uh, Texas when JFK was shot, and uh, heard Criswell uh, the the Sunday afterwards speak to a a, a moment in political history. Um, you pastored through the '60s, uh, right, and and into the '70s, and 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 then endured Chicago and and all the things that happened there. You know, some of the things that we're walking through are not new. I'd love to give you a chance just to compare our current experience with maybe some of the things that you've seen, particularly as it applies to pastors who are not sure how to deal with current events today. Okay, I'm glad to speak about that. In my ministry, I've never endorsed a political candidate or a political party, but I believe that pastors today have to speak to these issues. For example, because everything is political, abortion is a political issue, whether or not parents should have any input as to what their kids are taught at school is now a political issue. When you stop to think of it in worldview terms, you realize that the people in our congregations are always bumping up against the culture and political issues. For example, what should be taught in school? You know, here in the state of Illinois, as I'm sure it's around the country, we have a curriculum that is horrendous, introducing children to all kinds of sexuality in the very youngest grades. Well, 
parents have to be aware of this. And if we as a church pretend that these issues don't exist and just go on preaching as if our people are not confronting the culture, I don't think that we are meeting their needs. You know, regarding preaching, I mentioned the key word idea, which was such a help. But also, in my preaching, Dan, as I prepared a sermon, I always asked myself the question, why should somebody's life be changed forever because they've heard this sermon? We are not merely dishing out information. We are always interested in the transformation of life. Now, there's another part to your question, and that is, what have I observed that has really changed? The fact is that technology has changed everything. When I was uh, growing up, and certainly when I began my ministry as your grandfather, Warren Wiersbe, there were cassette tapes, uh, there were no cell phones, there was no social media. Today, everybody can go on social media and they, excuse me, they can be mad about everything and rage sell. So everybody's enraged about something. So I think it's important for the church to remain above the fray. We don't have to divide over COVID, though we have some very strong opinions regarding masks, regarding whether or not the COVID vaccines actually are beneficial or not beneficial. But what we need to do is to stay above the fray and say to Democrats, independents, and Republicans, you're all going to hell if you don't believe on Jesus. And so is politics important? Absolutely. I've written a book on Nazi Germany, the impact of uh, politics there. It's entitled Hitler's Cross. Politics is incredibly important, but we always have to remember it is not all important. And I, another thing I've learned in my old age, and by the way, I am 81. Dan, one of the good things about old age is it doesn't last very long. So <laughs> Come on now. Your, your, your parents made it past 100. I mean, come yeah, on. I know, I know. <laughs> but here's the point. I've determined... As, as I've talked about racial issues and all kinds of other issues, especially in my other books that have been written, we may never agree on everything. But as believers, we can still celebrate the transcendent unity of belonging to Jesus Christ and the one body. When Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek in the body of Christ, Jews didn't stop being Jews, Greeks didn't stop being Greeks, but the point is there was a transcendent unity. And so the challenge of the church today is how do we work that out without thinking we're going to agree on every single point? One of the approaches that I've observed, um, you know, I, I was at Moody, uh, the school, while you were uh, still pastoring. I was there in the mid 2000s and um, would stop by and listen and, and, um, would be blessed by your ministry. I don't think I ever heard you from the pulpit say something that was so sharp that it would divide the church, right? Not, not coming down so clearly as to say, this is morally right, this is morally wrong, in a partisan sense. Um, but then you have tremendous courage and clarity in your writing ministry. And so I'm curious, has that been a bit of your philosophy to, to maybe take a longer approach through a book to tackle a subject? 
it was there a strategy there or was just just kind of personal interest that led you down that road well i think it might be both there's no doubt that i've written things in my books that i couldn't stand up and preach that doesn't mean that i don't believe them but here's the thing when you are preaching especially when you're preaching on the radio and you have a wide audience you should not put up unnecessary stumbling blocks but also the possibility of being misunderstood is huge. What I did at the Moody Church is I would have times, for example, we had many Catholics who came to Saving Faith in Christ, and they would ask questions, you know, about the worship of Mary, about um, the Apocrypha, why do we have fewer books, and so forth. Well, I didn't want to preach about that because that would have caused so much confusion you get bits and pieces of information. So I would have a seminar on a Saturday when all the people who had these questions could come, and then we can interact. And that's the way I feel about my writing, is that there are issues that I tackle in my books that could be so easily misunderstood if I preached them that... Um, that's why I have a special interest in that. And you may be thinking of three books. Number one, The Church in Babylon. Number yes. two, We Will Not Be Silenced. And a brand new book entitled, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. And in that book, I uh, deal with issues that have to do with even how do we answer the question that we should feel guilty that we are actually on land that was stolen from the Indians? Issues like this, which obviously would not be very welcome in the pulpit. Do, do you think that's a, um, a bit of the way that God's wired you as a, as a pastor? You know, we always talk about exegeting the text, and we're taught that in seminary. We're told to exegete our audience, but we're not taught how to do that in seminary. And so my grandfather's approach would be to walk the aisles. And um, mine is to have coffee with people and ask them just, you know, deep questions. Um, but then what you do with that is interesting. Do you, it seems like you've really got a pulse, you know, and I commend you for this. You know, so many of um, my grandfather's, I think, fears later in life is that he would just stop knowing where the world was. Um, and so I, I think that changed a bit of his ministry, but do you, you seem to have your, your fingers just so closely attuned to where people are today. And that's a skill. I think that's a skill that's learned, but are you paying attention to that? And are there ways that you're cultivating that? And are those parts of your pastoral habits? Um, how, how would you encourage someone like me who's midway through my beginning well, lapse of ministry to do that? Well, that's a very interesting question. Did you know that when I came to Chicago in 1969, my intention was not to be a preacher? Believe it or not, I wanted to preach, but I wanted to be a teacher, professor in one of our seminaries teaching apologetics. So when I came here, I enrolled in at Loyola University and studied philosophy. And I finished all of my philosophy, except I didn't write the dissertation, because at that point, I became the pastor of Moody Church. Now, in retrospect, Dan, I can see how my background in philosophy picks up the nuances of our culture, and I maybe I see it more clearly than some others. So 
Is this something we should cultivate? Yes. And how do we cultivate it? Through reading, watching TV, keeping up with the news, finding out what's happening. Because there's always something new to learn when you begin to understand the application, for example, of uh, things such as critical race theory. If you know about its origin, you can pick up on how it has seeped into the culture. Let's take even the defund the police movement as an example. Many people don't understand that this is totally Marxist. Because Marx said the only reason why people commit crimes is because they are oppressed. If only we removed the oppression, everybody would live together in happiness. So Marx did not understand that sin existed in the human heart. He thought that it was something external imposed on people. So that's why you have people today saying, we have to get rid of the police, just get rid of the police, and there won't be any crime, or if there is crime, it'll be justified and we'll all live together in harmony. Absolute total disaster. But if you don't understand how ideas seep into our culture, and they do so oftentimes like termites, and we don't see them until the whole wall collapses. So these are the kinds of things that I've tried to pick up on throughout the years. Uh, did I read correctly in your autobiography that you, um, maybe you didn't finish the dissertation, but you did a lot of work um, in, in philosophy of moral relativism? Um, yes, actually, my first book, my first book was on moral relativism. It's no longer in print, but yeah. Well, we're going to, after this conversation, we're going to call a publisher and get it back because in, in my ministry, talking to so many people about current things, events, lifestyles, all those things. The the conversation stalls in a postmodern, uh, moral relativistic place. Um, how, how do you see our, is that something that you're seeing as well? And is there a way that we as ministers can speak to that? Um, it, it seems like the inertia of our world is continuing down that road. Uh, even to this day, for you to have been thinking about this for so long, I'm really interested in what you'd have to say. Yeah, and you don't even have to get my first book published. If you get uh, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture, I discuss it because we're living in a day of expressive individualism where I have my truth and your truth. And I point out that at Princeton, there came a directive that even mathematics has to be subjected to social justice. And if you believe that there's one right answer to every mathematical question, you are a white racist. Believe it or not, now this is insanity. But remember that George Orwell is quoted as saying, some ideas are so absurd that only intellectuals believe them. But we are, we are living, Dan, in an age of complete irrationality. And at the end of the day, there has to be objective truth. If you go to the bank and say, well, this is my truth and you have your truth as to how much money I have in, you know, you discover that we're really in some deep water immediately. So irrationality arises from this idea that I have my truth and you have yours. And this leads to the whole issue of, of transgenderism, as if self-perception is a guide to reality. And the answer is no, that's not true. Self-perception is oftentimes 
not a guide to reality. And so we as Christians need to teach other Christians how to confront this culture and how to navigate it and how to try to bring some rationality to it, knowing that uh, we live in a very irrational age where ideas trump reality. But we all need a core set of values if we're going to get along and function. So let's put that in the realm of preaching. Um, you're someone who's preached decades and uh, wouldn't have done it had it not been a, a calling and a, and a conviction. Uh, why, why in a morally relativistic world is preaching still necessary? A lot of the challenge that I, I uh, interpret from the stage to the people is that's just your opinion, pastor. I've got my opinion on it too. And I'm curious, how, what's the way out of that as a, as a preacher? Your first question had to do with the realm of preaching. Your grandfather used to say this, there's no substitute. How does that go? You probably know it by memory. There's no substitute for the man of God taking the word of God and preaching to the people of God. The reason that people think that preaching is irrelevant is they've heard so many preachers who give out information and do not give any evidence of deep conviction. The thing, again, re referencing Billy Graham and his influence in my life, the simple point is Billy's sermons. You've preached better sermons than Billy. I have. Your grandfather has. But when he preached, it was with such a deep sense that he believed this. It came not just from his mouth and his mind. And that's where a lot of preaching ends today. It goes from one mind to another. You know, ram it in, cram it in, people's heads are hollow. Ram it in, cram it in, make sure there's more to follow. But there isn't any heart. Let me say this to all the young preachers out there. If you don't capture a person's heart, your sermons aren't going to do much good. Jesus said, if a man has ears to hear, let him hear. What Jesus was saying is, we hear with our hearts, not just with our minds. Of course, we have to hear with our minds as well. So that's number one. I don't believe that preaching is irrelevant. I still want to go to a church and be taught the word of God. And I think that most Christians want to be taught the word of God. In our world, when it comes to propaganda, remember ideology always trumps facts. If we say that the border is closed, the border is closed even if 2,000 migrants come to America every day. In other words, it's the ideology oftentimes, facts are irrelevant. And there are times when all of us have been there where facts are irrelevant, but we have to understand that facts don't care how you feel. Facts are still facts and we have to show people that in real life, we do believe that. We do believe in objectivity. It's only in the realm of uh, education. You know, Anne Rand, who was not a friend of Christianity, said this. She said, you can avoid reality, but you can't avoid the consequences of avoiding reality. And that's what we have to say to our congregations. Yeah. Dr. Lucier, this has been so such a, a fascinating conversation for me to uh, pick your brain and to hear 
you know, you're one of my one of my preaching heroes. So thanks for taking some time to share how God's used you and and um, your ministry and the the things that you've learned over uh, faithful years of, of of pastoring and preaching. I'd love to give you a chance to give the one more thing. Right, this is a preaching podcast, so of course uh, there's a oh one more thing because that's every preacher's conclusion. Uh, so the one more thing for you, I just love to know what what do what are you saying to young pastors? What are you hoping for the church in the future? How, how are you like age seems to have a way of distilling truth to wisdom, to simple, like to very simple wisdom. And I'm curious, what's the simple wisdom that you're trying to uh, encourage the next generation with? Uh, you're not going to change the culture. The culture is doing what the culture is going to do. So here's my wisdom. And then I have a final word for you, Dan personally. Let's not interpret the Bible through the lens of culture. Let's critique culture through the lens of the Bible. Can you say that one more time? Yeah. Let's not, um, I hope I can, I know I can, I said it once. (laughs) Let's not interpret the Bible through the lens of culture. which is what many younger evangelicals are doing. They're giving the culture whatever the culture wants. Don't interpret the Bible through the lens of culture. Rather, critique the culture through the lens of the Bible. And it's not a matter of whether or not you're going to grow your church necessarily. Faithfulness is what is really required. And you can be faithful in the small things, And you can be faithful where God has planted you, even if nobody's heard of you, nobody's ever quoted you. You can be faithful where you are. But here's the thing. In our culture, you're going to pay a greater price of faithfulness. We're not in the culture that we were in 40 years ago. So that's my word. And be faithful, be loving, but don't let love swallow up truth. And now a final word for you, Dan. I was talking to your grandfather one day, and he was talking about you. And he said these words. He said, you know, I have this grandson who's preaching, yada, yada, yada. And he said, I wish that I could have preached as well as he's preaching when I was his age. So there's your uh, marching orders, Dan. Yeah. Now keep up yeah. to your grandfather. You're in a different age. You're going to preach differently, but be faithful. And he was so proud of you. Well, that means a lot to hear from, from you and from uh, him. And uh, our family likes to say God had a special assignment for Warren Wearsby that he has fulfilled and is done. And we all have our own assignments. And so thanks thanks for passing along that encouragement. Thanks, Dan. Um, God bless you. It means a lot. Uh, means a lot. God bless your ministry. Thank you. Wow, such great wisdom from Dr. Lutzer. I hope you caught it early at the beginning, his just quick definition of unity, order, and progress in preaching, using the one word for us to capture the essence of of a sermon. My grandfather was a master at that. And if you listen to his sermons, you're going to hear him say that time and time again. Here are four characteristics. Here are five truths. There are uh, four anchors. 
just had a way of using that one word to just to frame the text and to make it really simple for everybody. I've been doing that in my preaching over the past couple of years as I've picked up on that. And it's really revolutionized the way that people have heard the gospel through my voice. So I hope that's just been helpful to you. And I love his encouragement. The culture is going to do what the culture's going to do. But our task is to preach the gospel. Hey, I want to share just a little bit about myself. I'll be on these conversations uh, with some of these guests. Uh, Warren was my grandfather. For many years, I uh, admired him because he loved God and had a big library and, and loved to preach. He was on the radio when I would go downstairs to breakfast in the mornings. And, you know, when I was a kid, I thought every kid's grandpa was on the radio. It really dawned on me towards the age of 15, 16, how special it was to have a grandpa who loved God so much and wanted to help uh, use his time to help people meet Jesus. So um, one of the greatest things that I think I could spend my time doing to, to help further the conversation about preaching is to really honor the legacy of next generations. My, my grandfather was so concerned about the next generation. He often would say, the church is one generation away from extinction. Today, we face a whole litany of challenges. Lots of Christians grew up in the church and are now deconstructing their faith. And how are we as pastors and fellow believers to think about that? The culture is raging on in in certain directions here or there and pushing the church to answer to them. How do we as pastors think about that? So it's going to be really just a joy for me to ask these questions of people who have been at it longer than I have. I hope these conversations are must-listens for you and that you've already clicked that subscribe button on your podcast player to be able to catch all the messages that go out on a weekly basis just for your edification and your enjoyment. And for those of you who are just studying the art of preaching, you can also connect with us on Twitter. I'm the one behind the at Warren Wearsby Twitter feed. That's where we're posting retweets of quotes that you've seen your pastor preach in the wild or quotes from books. Um, Any of the things that we post there have come straight from the the writings or the preaching of Warren Wearsby. Any of the replies, well, those are me. Hey, I've got some great interviews coming up in the coming weeks with different guests. Michael Catt himself is going to be on the podcast along with uh, one of our family's good friends, uh, Jonathan Carswell from 10 of those publishings and a whole lot more. Uh, We hope to connect with you soon. My grandpa used to hang up the phone with me and he'd say this, Dan, all your problems go away when you preach and pray and plug away. So today, may you preach the gospel to yourself. Pray earnestly that you would know God, know his will. And just keep plugging away. We'll see you next time.